It's time to learn real American economics. Part three, Hayek's Constitution of Liberty, the worship of oligarchical culture. In this installment of this series, my intention was to provide a report on Hayek's magnum opus, the Constitution of Liberty. I must begin, however, by claiming that I, Robert Ingram, deserve some form of literary Purple Heart Medal for having subjected myself to such a mind-damaging experience. The book is excruciatingly boring, shallow in thinking, and repetitive beyond belief. Written 15 years after the road to serfdom, the Constitution contains nothing new whatsoever. There is not a single new idea. It's just the same catchphrases and slogans from a, a decade and a half earlier, only now drawn out to an interminable 571 pages. The technique employed seems to be a precursor of the drip, drip, drip method of waterboarding torture as it pushes the minds to the, the mind to the limits of human endurance. Perhaps the CIA could add mandatory reading of the Constitution of Liberty to its interrogation bag of tricks. Hayek's duplicity begins with the title. Do not be taken in by it. This book has nothing to do with the United States Constitution. In fact, the American Constitution is never mentioned. Hayek's Constitution is merely a prescription for oligarchical world rule. All of his ideas are cribbed from a hodgepodge of earlier British authors, and all of it flows from 17th, 18th, and 19th century Dutch and British empires, as found in the practices of the British and Dutch East India Companies, the Bank of England, and the Visselbank of Amsterdam. As in The Road to Serfdom, this book also is littered with the names of Hayek's aristocratic British heroes, Lord Acton, John Locke, David Hume, John Stuart Mill, Baron Macaulay, Walter Baghaut, uh, the propagandist for the City of London financial crowd, Alfred Whitehead, the mathematical logician who co-authored Principia Mathematica with Bertrand Russell, and Algernon Sidney, the hero of the, of the imperial agents who aided the 1688 Dutch invasion of England. That's just to name some of them. Again, Hayek's heroes, his icons, are all British, and they are all spokesmen, some official, for British imperial institutions. To repeat myself from the previous article of this series, Hayek's loyalty is to the British Empire. For those who are not aware of it, it should be pointed out that Hayek never became an American citizen. 
despite spending the last 20 years of his life in the United States. Hayek had moved to London in 1931 and quickly renounced his Austrian patrimony to become a British subject. In 1950, he moved to the United States, but from then until the end of his life, he remained, by choice, a subject of the British crown. The only significance of the Hayek corpus is how it has been put to use to carry out oligarchical designs in the real world. In the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher, speaking at a contentious meeting of her conservative party, grabbed a copy of the Constitution of Liberty and banged it on the table, gaveling her critics into silence. She then held the book aloft and proclaimed, This is what we believe. No astute thinker herself, Hayek's declaration, nevertheless, singled, singled an impending assault on national sovereignty, Republican ideals, and the productive economy. This was the war cry of the financial thieves of London. During the ensuing decades, we have witnessed the emergence of BlackRock Incorporated, the Koch brothers, and many, many, many other parasites who have destroyed our productive physical economy. We have been herded into a new deregulated era of offshore banking, leverage buyouts, and financial derivatives, turning our financial system into a gambling casino. All serious economic development of the poorer nations, the third world, has been sabotaged and our own national sovereignty has been severely eroded and the culture of our own people has been corrupted. That is Hayek's actual legacy. Subhead. Hayek's individualism versus man in the image of God. I have chosen just a few topics from the Constitution of Liberty to discuss here. Let's begin with the question of Hayek's biggest bugaboo, individualism. For those who have even glanced at Hayek's writings, you are aware that he raves on and on about liberty and freedom and about the coercive power of the state. This is all rooted in his concept of individualism. Here, more than in any other single topic, is where we see Hayek's intentional, transparent dishonesty and sophism on display. The unique, almost miraculous nature of the individual human identity and its capacity for creativity and love is central to the greatness of extended European culture, as expressed most vividly in the greatest accomplishments of the European Renaissance. What Hayek does, however, is to turn this on its head and to present a, prefer a perverted version 
in order to arrive at a completely different end. The historic European and Mediterranean concept of the human individual is most explicit in the dialogues of Plato, where the individual human potential for hypothesis and discovery, which exists within every human being, is explored in depth. In Christian civilization, the most precise approach to this topic is to be found in the notion promulgated by St. Augustine of Hippo of kapax Dei, that the individual human being is capable of receiving God, that the human mind can partake in God, and that each individual human being has the potential to participate in creation. It is the recognition of this divine potential, the, the potential to create within each of us and within all of our fellow citizens, which is the basis for all morality and the emotion known as agape. This defines a rigorous scientific distinction between the human species and the beasts. What Hayek proposes is the opposite. He rips out two millennia of Western civilization, consigns it to the dustbin, and replaces it with the ravings of John Locke. John Locke's notion of human freedom is lifted directly from the axioms of Roman law, that is, from the most murderous empire in human history prior to the British Empire. Locke declares that man's natural freedom, or individualism, as Hayek would say, derives from his original existence in a state of nature, a nature of perfect freedom, a condition where all beasts are created free and equal. In this state, man, the beast, has the sovereign right to defend his life, liberty, and property, sort of like a lion defending his kill against a pack of hyenas. Man surrenders some of these rights to enter society, that is, the social contract. But the fundamental law of nature, beast against beast, prevails. Created governments function only as arbiters, umpires, to keep the beasts from killing each other. This is the nightmarish mandate which condemns mankind to a perpetual culture driven by hostility and paranoia. There will be no mystic cords of memory to bind us together. There will be no sovereignty. There will be no mission for the Republic. And there will be no future mission to, inspi to inspire unborn generations. If you, strip, if you strip away the enticing chintz from Hayek's individualism, 
what you discover is the darkness at its core. Subhead, pleasure as the primary human motivator. Hayek then pr proceeds to replace the higher, nobler human aspirations with a new motivation for human actions, pleasure. In 1881, a man named Francis Edgeworth authored a book titled Mathematical Psychics, an essay on the application of mathematics to the moral sciences. Little known today, this work, curiously, was studied by both Friedrich Hayek and John Maynard Keynes. They even maintained a brief correspondence concerning Edgeworth's theories. Edgeworth's argument is that all economic financial systems must be, be, must be based on increasing what he calls a, quote, capacity for pleasure, unquote. Edgeworth was also a mathematician who dabbled in probability theory, and he insisted that a successful economic financial system must be grounded in the use of mathematical formulas which would show the probability of any given action having the effect of increasing individual human pleasure. Both Hayek and Keynes studied Edgeworth's writings, and those writings had a significant impact in the 1920s on their approach to money and to monetary systems. This pleasure principle has a long history within the British oligarchy, and it drives all British economic thinking. Uh, the two 19th century interventions, which declared pleasure to be the sole motivator for all economic activity, were Jeremy Bentham's hedonistic calculus and Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. In that latter work, Smith defines a moral order which is the polar opposite of the American Declaration of Independence. Smith demands that all human thinking, all human action, and all human economic activity is driven by the pursuit of pleasure and avoidance of pain. Let's stop here for a minute. Pause and reflect. Don't think about this article, this discussion, as simply an intellectual construct, like something being debated in a classroom, like a tedious lecture delivered by a tenured professor. Think about yourself. Think about your own life. Perhaps you have children whom you are trying to raise, who you cherish. Or maybe you're a, a young adult contemplating your future. Or you're a nurse or a fireman 
or a scientist in a laboratory struggling with a new discovery or some other profession. Look into your heart and ask yourself, are your day-to-day -day decisions, your motivations, your dreams, your aspirations dictated solely by the pursuit of pleasure? Is that who you really are? Is that who you want to be? Well, according to Adam Smith, you cannot escape the chains of that bestial identity. You are a prisoner to it because it is human nature. And Friedrich Hayek agrees with this 100%. I defy anyone to find Adam Smith's or Friedrich Hayek's definition of human nature in the New Testament, or for that matter, to find it in any of the writings of the Abrahamic religions. Subhead, Fortuna and Man's Impotence. Hayek goes further. Man is not only driven by the pursuit of pleasure like a beast, he also, like the beasts, is doomed to ignorance as to universal principles and ultimately is impotent to affect the course of human development. In Chapter 2 of the Constitution of Liberty, The Creative Powers of a Free Civilization, Hayek says the following, quote, the case for individual freedom rests chiefly on the recognition of the inevitable ignorance of all of us. Liberty is essential to make possible the unforeseeable and unpredictable. It is because every individual knows so little, and in particular because he rarely knows which of us knows best, that we trust the independent and competitive efforts of many to induce the emergence of what we shall want when we see it. We must recognize that the advance and even the preservation of civilization are dependent upon a maximum opportunity for accidents to happen. Our necessary ignorance of so much means that we have to deal largely with probabilities and chances. All we can do is to increase the chance that some special constellation of individual endowment and circumstance will result in the shaping of some new tool for the improvement of an old one. All institutions of freedoms are adaptations of this fundamental fact of ignorance, adapted to deal with chances, and probabilities." Unquote. More will be discussed in the next installment of this series on this subject. So for now, we will let the above words of Hayek speak for themselves. 
I will just emphasize here that Hayek flatly denies that the millennia-long advancement of human civilization is the product of human intention or the creativity of the human mind. It has all been unknowable. It has all been accidental. Subhead, oligarchical law. The phrase rule of law is much heard these days, and Hayek spends a great deal of time rambling on about it. But here again, his sophism is startling. It is not constitutional law that he discusses at all. The first thing to point out is that law in the United States of America is constitutional law. It is based entirely in the principles to be found in the Declaration of Independence, the United States Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. It is in, its intention is defined by the sacred vow that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, and the Constitution's pledge to protect and defend the general welfare of the people of the Republic. The United Kingdom, on the other law, has no constitution, and all talk of British constitutionalism is just so much piffle. British legal practice derives from a century, the centuries-long rule of the British financial elite, the oligarchy, during which time Britain has developed a patched-together series of legal compacts, precedents, compromises, and edicts, which they call their legal code. So the first question to ask is, when Hayek speaks of the rule of law, whose law is he talking about? He lets the cat out of the bag in chapter 6 when he states, quote, The rule of law was consciously evolved only during the liberal age. Unquote. So let's be very, very clear. For Hayek, the rule of law that he speaks about flows from the practices and beliefs which governed the British Empire in the 19th century with an economy driven by the pursuit of pleasure and with millions dying as a result of British free trade colonial practices. In the British system, there are no self-evident principles which are true for all eternity. Hayek never mentions the U.S. Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. Instead, he warns of how government authority will use its coercive powers against the people, and that the state, which under our Constitution is the government of the people, is in reality the enemy, the adversary of the people, 
This emphatically was not the outlook of George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Abraham Lincoln, nor of Governor Morris, who wrote in the preamble to the Constitution that ours is a republic of we the people, a republic in which we all have a shared mission and intention to uplift and better human civilization and to end oligarchical rule forever. End of part three. Next part four. Hayek and Keynes, two peas in a pod.